Good morning and welcome to Come and Reason Sabbath School. We are talking about Deuteronomy today. Lesson three, the everlasting covenant. Tim is away speaking elsewhere. And I will say that because he's away and I don't have his photographic memory, we are not going to do the question and answer session for today. You can save those tricky questions for him when he returns. Let's have prayer. Dear Father, we are so grateful, so grateful for all the blessings. It isn't until you lose something that you really appreciate what you had. You bless us in every way and help us to maintain a spirit of gratitude and compassion for others. Fill us with your Holy Spirit today as we study your word. Help us to understand how something in Deuteronomy applies to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're talking about covenants. I, to me, covenant is a pretty simple thing. I don't know about you, but a covenant is an agreement, a contract, a promise, a pinky swear. <laughs> Only more important than a pinky swear, but to kids it would be pinky swear. But it's where we make an agreement. My mother lives in a subdivision that has covenants. For those of you who aren't familiar with covenants or that type of covenant, it's a lengthy list of things that you can or cannot do if you choose to live there, if you agree to live there. What kind of animals you can have, what you can or can't do with your yard, what type of changes you can make to your house, what kind of house you can build to begin with. There are many, many types of rules. Why would anyone choose to live in a subdivision that has covenants? So many rules. Mostly people do that to maintain their property value. They're willing to make these agreements so that they can live with other people who also want to maintain their property values. Five years ago, when my father was becoming more disabled, we decided it was time for a ramp. Because they live in a subdivision with covenants, we would have had to have gone through this whole approval process to get approval to put a ramp on the outside of the house. So we decided to not do that for several reasons, one of which was we didn't want to have to go through that process because he needed it immediately. So we installed the ramp inside the garage. Luckily, they had a garage that was wide enough to have a ramp and cars. But we also enjoyed the fact that we didn't have to get in the weather to get in and out of the car. The ramp itself wasn't weathered from the, from the rain and snow and so on. We didn't want the ramp outside, too, because it might make people realize there's disabled people living in here. You can, you can be a criminal in their house and they won't be able to get back at you. A covenant is a very valuable tool. We agreed. We promised. We kept our covenant promise with the subdivision. What happens if you break that promise? Well, in a subdivision, you get fined. And also, you might get really upset neighbors because what you do to your property will affect the value of their property. My husband and I live out in the country. There are no covenants, which means that your neighbors can do anything they want, seemingly, and you have no real recourse. <laughs> they can, in our case, we had beautiful woods next to our, our driveway when we bought it. And that was quickly supplanted by a small house and a yard filled with trash and toys. In fact, one time I went out there while they were gone and with a bag and <laughs> was picking up their trash and was horrified to discover that they had open needles in their yard, and their little kids ran around barefoot. They had like four kids, didn't they? Yeah. I was shocked <laughs> and appalled. They have guns. They love guns. They shoot them anytime they want, or they shoot squirrels anytime they want. So covenants are valuable. Marriage is a covenant. That's another type of covenant we're pretty familiar with when we make a promise with another person that we plan to keep. But these days, often we don't. But it's easy. Why is it so easy to break our promises? God considers himself our husband, and we believers are his bride. 
We look down at the Israelites. I'm, I think I do when I read through the Old Testament. I thought, if you read the whole Bible, I continuously read it. When I end it, I start. So I've read it, I, I don't even know how many times. But I tend to look down and think, how could these Israelites, after so much evidence, after so much that God did for them, turn to idol worship, turn away from God? How could they possibly do that? We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't turn away. We wouldn't complain about everything, the manna, the water, everything they complained about. We wouldn't worship anything else like they did. Is is that true? If you think about it, is that really true? How How might we behave in a way that the Israelites behaved and not really even recognize it? Any ideas? Rachel. Living in fear. Living in fear. Good. Worshiping our possessions. Mm-hmm. And I? Yeah. Our responses during the pandemic. Exactly. Attitudes of, towards the covenants, so to speak, there. Yeah. Exactly. Good, good points, everybody. Uh, the things I wrote down were, um, we're too busy. We're just too busy to stay connected to God. We want to, we aim to, uh, maybe I snatch a quick prayer here and there, a Bible verse. Um, now I'm, I have the luxury of being retired, so I could spend, when I study the Bible, I lose all track of time. You know, hours could go by and I'm like, I have to get up, I have to eat, I have to get dressed. What am I doing? How long has this been? You, it, it really absorbs you if, you if you start studying it. But when the days, when in my earlier days, when I was a mother of children and worked full time at very stressful, hectic jobs, uh, it was all I could do to snatch in a few minutes here and there and here and there. Well, under those conditions, how can a relationship thrive? You, Rachel. Well, one of the blessings about prayer is it doesn't require any equipment. I like that. You can be in your car. You can be... Uh, in the middle of the night nursing a baby, you can be waiting for someone. You can train yourself whenever you have a moment that you have to wait to spend that moment in prayer. I've actually even expanded that. I detest dusting. You know, I like things to be in order, but I detest dusting for some reason. And so I read this thing once that said, I dusted once. It came back. I'm not falling for that again. <laughs> the women will appreciate that, I think, particularly. Every time you turn around, you just dust it, and there it is again. But we're too busy. We're just too busy. And then how about when we focus and complain on about other people and other people's behavior? It may not be complaining about manna or the lack of leaks in your food or something, But when we observe other people and complain about other people, focus on other people, complaining about others. What about spending too much time with entertainment, with politics, business, hobbies, etc.? Then we spend with God. I think if you begin to keep track, just take a week and keep track of how you spent your week. I... You know, I can see, you can just see in, I spent three hours doing this and 15 minutes doing that. And consider how that would work in a, in a relationship with your husband. Spend all day with something and then whoop, get in a few minutes there. So there's that. And that kind of thing will allow other items to, to go into your life. In the case of the Old Testament, idols, actual idols. But in our case, we can have idols of other things. doesn't have to be a little, a little idols. I, I used to think they were huge, and some of them were. But the idols, like remember Rachel uh, was sitting on the family idols on the camel, uh, what was it, saddle, camel saddle, and told her father, I can't get up because I'm having my period. <laughs> and I thought, what on earth was she sitting on that she could do that? But they're little tiny things. They've been digging them up. In archaeology. Now I have a a question. What if somebody commands you to love them? We see that all the time in the Old Testament. I command you to love me. How does that make you feel? 
rebellious? No, <laughs> you can't make me. And yet the Bible's always saying, I command you, love me. Love me, you must love me. And so Satan took that to the, to, on the road and decided that God, all he wanted was do it for me. Love me, I command you, love me. And that's the attitude he took of a rebel. That he could not be made to love somebody. And sometimes it brings out the rebel in us. Uh, you must love God. But have you ever really considered how you can love and trust someone that you cannot see, you can't hear, you can't touch, you can't, usually you can't hear, you can't touch? Any ideas how you can love somebody, a being that says he created you and loves you, but how do you actually love an invisible being? We see the results of his work, what he's done, things that he does for you. I mean, you know, you don't see the wind, but you see the results of it, what happens. So you believe in the wind. And so That's true. The, the miracles even that God performs in your life over the years, then you realize that, you know, he is somebody you can trust. He is somebody that loves you because of what he's done for you. Yes. I notice that a lot of times people think that God only does the big miraculous things in your life. I'm totally stuck. It's a Red Sea moment. And yes, he helps you. But I've found out, and I don't know if you have in your lives, that God just gives you little flowers too. Sometimes in your life, you just need cheering up or you just are in a funk or something. You can't get over something in your mind that's happened. And God hears that. And sometimes he'll just do little things to make you happy, just to show you, I care about what happens to you. I don't know about you, but that brings out in my heart a feeling of appreciation and love. I know there's people who have spent long years apart from each other, and how they communicated to somebody they couldn't see was through letters. They were able to express their heart through letters. And God wrote us a giant one. <laughs> and so I find a lot of connection through God speaking through the Bible. I, I, no matter how many times I've read the Bible, every time it seems new. I don't know, that's hard to put. And it's the exact same words <laughs> that I've read many, many times before, but I will swear that I have never read that before. It jumps out to you like a brand new statement. And I know I've read it before. So I've read this same Bible for decades. Had it reupholstered and everything. But in any event, I feel a connection to God when I read his letter to me. And I see the things that uh, the Bible says. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's the difference between seeing a luscious dish and putting it in the refrigerator versus seeing a luscious dish and eating it. It's not enough to know about God, about who he is and the place he plays in your heart. And isn't that all wonderful? Taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants an actual relationship with us, not just a head knowledge, who he is, what he stands for. I do appreciate that. But... According to John seventeen three, eternal life is to know God. And I think that no is a very intimate no, the biblical no. Know him so intimately that you cannot be misled by somebody telling you the truth. It's like when you have counterfeit money. You, you know, you, there's so many counterfeits, you can't learn the counterfeits. So what you do is you learn the real one. And that way, no matter what counterfeit comes your way, you know that's a counterfeit. That's a counterfeit. I can tell because it's not like the real one. And so, to me, a covenant is more than just an agreement that you'll do this and I'll do that. Great. You could be roommates. You know, you do the dishes and I'll do the vacuuming. You could be roommates. But to me, a covenant is more than just an agreement. And then there's people who have had rough backgrounds. Many have had rough backgrounds, terrible parents, <laughs> terrible situations in their marriage and so on. Sometimes that makes it hard for people to love and trust a being who says they love them, 
But in their experience, people who say they love you don't act like that. They hurt you. They cause you to coil. It's like an anemone, you know, when, especially with women. I speak from my point of view. Women are like an anemone. You know, they're beautiful and all that. But if you poke them, <laughs> they go like this. And it may take a while for them to come back out again. If you're poked repeatedly by people who say they love you and trust me and so on, your life will be like this. It will be harder for you to open up to an invisible being who says they love you. But God didn't have anything to do with that behavior. And it's a little bit of a soapbox for me. But when people say God is in control, I just cringe. God is in control of certain things. He's in control of himself, what he did to save us, things he does to help us or answer our prayers. But the problem with saying God is in control all the time is that that means God's responsible. Is God responsible when a person gets drunk and decides to drive and runs over your child and kills them? Was that God's plan for that child's life? Was that what he wanted to happen? We have choice. If we didn't, God could have just made a bunch of puppets if we were, if we were all going to be controlled at every given moment. Why make us? The fact that he made us with free choice shows that we are free. We are not puppets. We are not controlled. By God, we make choices. And, but I will say, on the other hand, as you connect closer to him and he takes out the wrong wiring or wrong computer code, virus, if you will, and puts in his virus-free code into you, things change inside. Things change. And this stuff you can't do for yourself. One of the most poignant verses in the Bible I found in Isaiah 65, 1 and 2, when God says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me to a nation that did not call on my name. I said, here am I, here am I. All day long I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. And when I think of this invisible God saying that he wants us to imagine him, saying, here I am, here I am. You may not be able to see me, but I'm here. I want to be healing you. Let me, let me in. And Hosea 11 describes God's perspective on his relationship with his people, Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. I don't know if you've had children who do that. The more you call, the more they run away. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they didn't realize it was I who healed them. So even in the Old Testament we talk about God healing them. His purpose is to heal them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. Puts people in our lives that show us God's love. I always say, you know, people may not be able to see, touch, hear God, but they can see and touch, hear you. And if God is living in you, then they are hearing from God, but just through you. Uh, To them, I was like one who lifts the little child to the cheek. And I bent down to feed them. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me the Most High, the God Most High. I will, be no, I will in, by no means exalt them. How can, and then I skip a little, and how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me. Even God talks about his heart. He feels all my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. There's many times when God talks about feeling something. We think about the flood. And when talking about the flood, it says, uh, Genesis says that God saw that the thoughts of people were evil continually. We think just deeds, but it says the thoughts of people were evil. What they're hiding inside is terrible. 
and his and he regretted that he'd made man, and his heart was filled with pain. He came down to Sodom and Gomorrah because the cry of the misery of these people had come up to him, and he couldn't stand it any longer. God hurts for us. He he wishes we would let him in to heal him, to heal us. You know, the word covenant is mentioned, I counted it, 334 times in the Bible. So to God, it must be very important, a covenant. So on Sunday, we're still on Sabbath afternoon, overview. (laughs) This week's memory text is, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations for an everlasting covenant. And that's what we're focusing on this week. This week, The length of the covenant is everlasting to be your God and your descendants after you. This one doesn't necessarily have a I do this and you do that. This one just says, I will, I'll be your God. Then looking at the middle section of that uh, Sabbath afternoon, it says, God, out of his saving grace and love, offers you a salvation that you do not deserve and cannot possibly earn. And you, in response, love him back with all your heart, your soul, your mind, with all your strength. A love is made manifest by obedience to his law, for this is love of God that we keep his commandments. But I, does anything strike you about this? It's what I said. Do anything? Do you think anything about what I just read? Uh, something made me cringe in this in this um, little paragraph here. A salvation you do not deserve, which is an attitude that a lot of people have. Do we not deserve to be saved? Were we Adam and Eve that made the choices against God, or did we get just born into it, born this way? Did we choose to be born terminal? I would submit that God could do nothing less than what he's accomplished for our salvation, not only because he loves us that much, but because we do deserve to be healed, to have a chance to make a different decision than Adam and Eve made. We didn't ask for this. We can't be held responsible or accountable for what Adam and Eve did. And so when somebody says we don't deserve it, it it makes me think, if I have a child filled with cancer, do they deserve to get treatment? I think so. They didn't ask to get this. They need the treatment. I've found someone who gives the cure. But we're like that child. We are absolutely riddled with sin. We are dying with sin. Do we not deserve healing? Are we not children of God? Children of God. And you have to think what he position he puts you in. He puts you in the position of being a child of the ruler of this entire universe. And if you've ever looked at astronomy, for example, you can see, at least so far, that we can see galaxies 13, 14 billion light years away. I cannot even imagine, my mind can't fathom that distance, light years. The distance life could tra- light could travel in 13 or 14 billion years. That is a long ways away. And this God who rules that, created, says he created and rules this entire universe, wants you and me, us, to be his child. Does, do we not deserve healing? So these things, these things make me cringe when I hear, we are so undeserving, we don't, you know, we're just worms, and like, we're a child of God. This always bothered me from the time I was a small child that I'm born into a world where I'm born a sinner. Well, maybe not born a sinner, but I am a sinner. And I, but there are two verses that, one is in Romans, and the other one in First Corinthians 15. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, so... As by one man sin entered the world of death by sin, so by Christ, I can't quote this exactly, he gave life to all. So we all have that advantage if we choose to have it. But so often, right, but so often God is offering it, I think, and I think kind of visually, I don't know, I, that way. Uh, and I think of, here's your child, sinking in the water like Peter was doing, 
and you reach down, and instead of doing what Peter did, which was grab his hand, they slap your hand away. Every time you try to get them, you see them sinking lower and lower, and they keep slapping your hand away and slapping your hand away. And finally, they run out of energy, and they don't slap your hand away because they aren't even there. They aren't, they aren't even in the position. They're gone. What a devastating thing that would be. And God has felt this way, has understood what we would go through through eternity. We just suddenly find out about it. But as he knew about it beforehand, he's known about this sacrifice, this issue forever. It's not like his memory just suddenly kicked in. He's known about it. So he has, he has suffered tremendously because of our choice. And like you said, he suffered tremendously. You didn't say that part, but he gave up everything to save us. To me, that means we're deserving. We are deserving of being saved if he would risk that much for us. So we can't be held accountable for where we were born, what we were born in sin, but what, what, what can we be held accountable for? The choices we make today. We can be held accountable for one of those choices would be taking your medicine. It took Christ's life to develop a medicine. He offers it freely. There's no charge. But we've got to take that in order to be saved. It's not enough to go to the doctor, get the medicine. I trust the doctor. I got the medicine. I set it on the shelf. I'm pretty sure the medicine would cure me, but never take it. So how do we take our medicine to be healed? The medicine that God created. See, I think that's what the covenant is about. It's not just, I agree to that, you agree to that, we're all good. To me, the covenant with God is how you take your medicine. It is how you become healed. It isn't until you have that connection with God that you can be healed. The covenant is more than just an agreement. It is an actual relationship. It is the way we are saved. Christ created this cure and offers it to us. We agree to, we trust God enough to take that cure. To allow him in. To say, okay, I'm not afraid of you. I've had to tell God many times, I don't trust anybody but you. I don't trust especially myself. I'm liable to do the very thing I don't want to do. I'm totally with Paul when he says, the very things I want to do, I don't do. And those that I don't want to do, I do those. Who can save me? And it's Christ who can save us. He takes, he pours in the Holy Spirit. He delivers the medicine. And we are just open enough to, to let him in and take it. You look like you might have a question. No? <laughs> I think that's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, because suddenly as I was studying for this lesson, I thought, the, what is a covenant? In this case, a covenant is more than just an agreement. It's a relationship. It is a signet of our relationship. As a nurse, which I'm a retired nurse now, I think in medical terms, probably one of the reasons I really love this class, so does Tim, and he brings in all this really information that I find really interesting. And one of the things I feel uh, interested about is why the Bible talks about the blood so much. Power in the blood, we say, um, takes Christ's blood to save us. Interestingly, the DNA in our blood and how it's expressed is us. It's the code for who we are. How we're different from others. But Jesus' DNA was entirely unique. It was human and, and divine. What an amazing swap he offers. I think in terms of transfusion. I have leukemia. He's pouring in, he's transfusing me with his blood, with his way of doing things, with his way of thinking, his compassion, his forgiveness, his love. A complete removal of the virus that is sin from our brains. So John 17, 25 and 26 says, Jesus prayed for his disciples and all of us. Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you've sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself will be in them. 
I myself will be in them. It always amazes me when at the Last Supper, it says Judas had made his choice. It said, Satan entered into Judas. Can you imagine Satan himself entered Judas? This is the reverse. Jesus himself enters you. And the fact is, in order to have that happen, you have to have a covenant relationship with him. You have to be so open, so trusting in what he will or won't do, so he, he and realize that he only has your very best at heart. Sometimes we're brought up to think, he's watching everything. The angels are watching everything. Um, when is that other shoe going to drop? <laughs> I know it's good now, but some shoe's going to drop here in a minute, and I just know it. And we live a life of fear. Fear. We cannot imagine a life without fear. But I've thought about it. My mother tends to be kind of a fear-filled person. And I have to kind of talk her down a fair amount because fear and anxiety kind of go like this. And I will say, I can't, I'll say to her, imagine heaven. Imagine a life without fear. You know, we like, oh, the gold streets and all this kind of thing, the ability to fly. But to me, to uh, wake up to a, a place where you don't have to be afraid of anything. Not somebody killing you, hurting you, taking your job, taking your husband, taking, burning your house down. You don't, we, we live in so much fear all the time. We don't even realize it. Even if we think we're not afraid, we are. We're afraid of other people on the sidewalk. Maybe they'll hurt us. Their dog might hurt us. <laughs> you know, this, this list of fears is that we're surrounded by is from birth. Don't touch that. Don't do this. You might get hurt. Blah, blah, blah. Think for a minute about what a life with no fear at all would be like. To not have to be afraid of anybody. To realize that everybody you meet will want your happiness, your benefit more than theirs. Everyone you meet will want your well-being. Sometimes it's good to just sit and think about that. And that's what God wants us, because perfect love casts out fear. God wants us to have perfect love of him so that we don't fear. Now on Sunday, finally, we look at the first paragraph. All through the Bible, the covenant and gospel appear together. They want to point out that the central truth of the covenant was the gospel, the good news of faith alone. From the second half of the page, Abraham believed God, believed in his promises, and thus he was justified before God. He sought to uphold his end of the covenant by obedience, basically what God told, doing what God told him to do. Such as in Genesis 22, when he showed the whole watching universe that he was totally trusted God by being willing to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. His faith was accounted for righteousness. Why? Why is faith counted as righteousness? Any ideas? Faith is the depth of your belief or your faith in God. It shows how much you believe in Him by having faith. And then whenever you exercise your faith, it only strengthens it more, which deepens your love and understanding of God. And just and you, when you started off that way, my mind jumped to what Ellen White said when she said, "Prayer is the key in the hand of faith that unlocks." heaven's storehouses why don't we use that key more often <laughs> do we too busy, like you said too busy we we don't use the key to an of faith all that is is a way to accomplish something faith opens the door to all these blessings all the benefits The covenant promises are made to all Jews and Gentiles who are of faith. I found this very confusing. See if it makes sense to you. Maybe you can help me with this. It says the covenant promises are made to all Jew and Gentile who are of faith so that they are justified by faith without the deeds of the law, however much they're obligated because of the covenant to obey the law. Does that anyone find that clear? It was, was it just me? <laughs> this is on Sunday in the second half of the page. It's a quote from there. 
I have better lines. I didn't understand that. <laughs> I feel better. I'm not alone. <laughs> I found it very confusing. So I think we ought to start where we often start in this class. What law lens are we looking through? That's a question we ask all the time. Because it's talking about the deeds of the law, however much they're obligated, but they're justified by faith without the deeds of the law. <laughs> I think that means that if you love me, keep my commandments. That's clearer. For sure. That um, faith means we actually believe God enough to do what he says. And he enables us to do it. And That's the other thing. Because yes. God's laws. Oh, yes. I find that when I read statements like that, if I use the word trust yes. instead of faith, mm-hmm. many of them make much more sense. So let's read it with the word trust. The deeds of the law is a quote from Paul, and he just means that the law doesn't save us. That's right. Being a nurse, and also one of the things Tim brought up that really came home to me was, if you think of the law, or just the Ten Commandments, if you think of the Ten Commandments as an MRI, that makes sense to me. What does an MRI do? You go in there, and it shows you what's going on. It shows you that you're screwed up in there, some lesion is there, something is terrible is going on, and so on. But can the MRI cure you? No. It can just show you what's wrong. The law shows you what you're doing wrong. If you, you shouldn't be doing this, that, the other thing. But it doesn't cure you. So when you have the MRI and you find out, oops, something terrible is wrong, what's your next step? You find a good doctor that fixes that kind of thing. And you go to the doctor, and he says, I have just the thing for you. Just came onto market. It's the best thing. It'll completely cure you. And so you go, and you get the medicine, and you set it on your counter, and you never do anything about it again. Does that even make sense? And yet that's what we often do. So you go to the doctor. You get the medicine. You faithfully take the medicine, and the medicine does magical things. How many of you know how aspirin works? Aspirin. Simple. How does it work? I don't know. I'm a nurse, but I just give pills to people. I don't know how they do it. I didn't research and develop the thing. But it goes in your body and magically shows up right where you need it. (laughs) So I don't know how what God created heals us. I just know that it does. That it makes a difference in your life. It helps you to deal with the wounds of this life. I'd like to throw something in here that... um one of the, the true benefits of this class is that, is that Tim um, demystifies church speak. He, he unpacks the, some of the almost trite sayings that there are in, in the, the uh, religious community. But it, it, what it boils down to is that people are sort of rehearsing to each other what, what they have heard over so many years. It's like we're, we're sort of reminding each other of the, the verbiage that we need to use so that we can be correct. In, in the instance of uh, Abraham, for instance, when, when he was there uh, by faith doing what he thought he might have to do to, to be obedient to God, which, of course, he knew was not ordinarily anything that God would ask of someone. He was very much aware that, that uh, God was a God of love and, and, and a, that he would provide as opposed to the, the, the uh, cults of Moloch, for instance, where you, you sacrifice your children on a regular basis. So that was, that was a, a big deal for him to actually be there and have to you know, make that kind of a show, even if it, even if it, even if he figured that God would really make a way out for him, which of course he did. Well, it shows because that's what he told his son when his son had said, "We have the wood, we have the fire. Where's the, where, where's the sacrifice? God Himself will provide." Yeah. Right. So he had the faith to realize that God Himself would provide, and of course He did. And you say, why would God ask something like that of him when the whole surrounding nations were all about sacrificing many of their gods offered 
you had to offer child sacrifices. We were visiting Chichen Itza in Mexico one time. And that we were lucky. There was four couples and we had our own tour guide. <laughs> so he was able, well, I was able to hear him for once. And I don't know how many of you have been on tours where you're at the edge and you can't half hear what they're saying. But this one, you could, he showed pictures and he talked about the history of Chichen Itza and what they did there. And one of the things they used to do was sacrifice children. When they were young, you're going to be a mathematician, you're going to be an astronomer, you're going to be a sacrifice. They were actually pretty much programmed. That was their short life. And what they would do is they would stop feeding the child about a week before they were to be a sacrifice. They would instead give them drugs, would give medicinal drugs from the, uh, or drugs from the woods, you know, where it surrounded them, and drug them for a week, purifying rituals, yada, yada. And then they would drape them with gifts for the gods, heavy, around their neck and so on. And then they would ch- jump or maybe be pushed <laughs> into the Esenote, which is kind of a underground water where the, where the ground has eroded away. And you can see sky, but the side of it is like this, concave. And so they would go into the Cenote with heavy stuff, having been starved for a week and drugged, and sink to the bottom and drown. And that was their sacrifice. Now, they said that if anybody climbed up out of there by some miraculous thing, they were treated as a god the rest of their life. But I imagine that happened very rarely. (laughs) But here's, you know, child sacrifice had become a ritual all around the world and in a lot of cultures. So why would God ask that Abraham sacrifice his son like the rest of the people were doing? Was it? So that he could announce, I'm just like the gods around you, Rachel? I know the answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this bothered me for such a long time. Uh, Jesus said, Abraham asked to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So that made clear to Abraham what God was about to do in Jesus. And Wendell? I think God talks to us in languages we can understand. If he talked to me in Swahili, I would not have a a clue what he was saying. He speaks to me in English. He speaks to, and the culture I'm in. We have have such dark tinted glasses that we have a hard time seeing. We see as if in a mirror darkly. And God speaks to us in our culture and our language. I think of that often when we look at the children of Israel when they first came out of Egypt. I'm sure God would have liked to have addressed them as adult, responsible, mature, godly people. But what he was dealing with was 400 years of being a slave where everything met with death. Death, death, death. Terrifying insults. Death. And you look at what they're worried about. Eating and drinking. It's like little children. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I heard a counselor say one time, he said, all the people who come to me, you know, you start buffing and you hope, and sometimes they buff right up and it's simple. Other times you start buffing and it breaks through and there's a horrible mess in there. <laughs> and you can't take the person from where they are and bring them to where you wish they were. You have to take them where they are. You have to start off as, as like children to them. So a lot of the times we look at the way God dealt with, chil- with the children of Israel and say that's the way God wants to deal with us. That's why one of the reasons I think Jesus came is because we had such a terrible idea of what God was really like that he actually had to come and show us what he was really like. The way he would like to talk with us in the still small voice. Not in the fire, not in the earthquake, not in the tempest. God was in the still, small voice, and he always wished he could have dealt with us that way, but he had to deal with us as children. Wendell? Someone asked one time why Christ fed the disciples, after his resurrection, by the seashore, why he fed the disciples fish. Didn't he know there was better food? You know, to be, if he would have fed them anything else, that would have been the focus of that meal. He had to talk to them about other things. And so he fed them with what was familiar so that they could concentrate on what he was saying to them about the kingdom. So often 
He gives us things that maybe aren't ideal, but so we don't get distracted by whatever, mm -hmm. so that he can talk to us about the kingdom. And also, the Prophets says that one of the reasons God, or Abraham had to go through this was God was demonstrating to the universe how faithful Abraham was. And of course, they didn't know the end of the beginning. They didn't know what was going to happen. But it showed how faithful and trusting Abraham was to God. And if you see his history, you can see why the universe needed that lesson from him. Because he, a couple of times, you'd have thought he would have done it the first time he would have learned that lied who his wife was. And she apparently was so beautiful, Pharaoh in Egypt took her to be one of his wives. And then later on, Abimelech took him to be one of his wives when they left Egypt. By, uh, the, sac by the experience that Abraham went through when he thought he was going to have to sacrifice his son, but he didn't, God was making a statement that human sacrifices were abhorrent to him. That is not what he wanted because he provided the sacrifice. Good point. That's good. Yeah. I think of the Israelites. When we want a king, we want a king. And God says, you, you won't want a king. I'm telling you, he's going to do things you won't like. He'll take your children. He'll take the best of your land, the best of your produce. He'll tax you out the wazoo. You won't like it. I'm telling you, you won't. We want a king anyway. So what's God do? Does he go off and say, good luck to you? No, he helps them find a king. Though he told them not to have a king, you won't like a king. He helped them find a king. At least the best king under the circumstances that he could find. So I find that um, understanding God is a lot about reading these stories and reading why. It's one of the reasons I actually value Ellen White so much. Because without right now my mother and I are reading through the Bible together. And reading Ellen White's uh, Conflict of Ages series as we go. kind of, And it's amazing how differently you would think of a situation if she didn't draw back the curtain a little more and explain if God had done this, this would have happened. The reason he did that was that. She really helps you to understand the whys, draws back the curtain a little more. And I really appreciate that about her because it's easy to get the wrong idea about God by looking at how he dealt with the children of Israel, <laughs> literal children of Israel. And also, this time through, something dawned on me, because every time I go through, something new dawns on me. And that is, uh, why did God treat uh, behave certain ways towards the, um, the uh, countries around them? Like when he allowed the Israelites to be overcome or taken away or whatever. Now, he has to teach the Israelites a lesson that they won't learn any other way. So, but what about the people around there? You focus on the Israelites, you think, well, God had to do it. I mean, they were never going to learn, except that they have some really hard uh, lessons to learn. Find out what it's really like to live under a human ruler like Nebuchadnezzar or something. But what did God have to do as well? That's another thing to look for when you're reading through the Bible. He's not only... Um, He's not only dealing with the children of Israel and their needs, he's dealing with the surrounding nation and their perceptions. Because in their minds, a God was strong. If you were taken over, your God was weak. If you won, your God was strong. So what happens to the surrounding nations when God allows them to be taken away or allows them to be overcome? Now he has to turn to that nation and show him who he, who he real, show, the, show them who he really is. Like the Philistines, for example, when the Israelites do a bad thing and take the ark into battle without God's say-so and so on, and it's taken by the Philistines. They lose the battle and the ark is taken. So now God has to deal with the Philistines. What do they think of God? They think he's weak because he allowed the Israelites to lose the battle and also to lose their God because they thought the ark was the God. Now they have it. Yippee. So what did he do? He tried to teach them the lesson that he had let the Israelites be uh, taken over or uh, lose. I'm trying to think of the word I'm thinking of, but I can't. 
But then, how do you deal with the Philistines' perception that that makes God weak? Their idols falling down to worship. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And they start getting plagues. They apparently, maybe bubonic plague. Anyway, they make these gold tumors and gold rats to symbolize what had happened to their people. They all of a sudden had a plague. People were dying right and left. The other, they wanted to move it to a different city. The people finally saying, don't send it to our city. You're going to make us die. <laughs> so they realized through that series of events that God was not to be trifled with. He was not weak just because he let the Israelites be taken over in battle. And, and so what they do? They sent back the ark. <laughs> They voluntarily sent back the ark. They recognized God was powerful. It wasn't his doing. I mean, that he was not weak. What happened to Israel was their own fault. So he, this time, when you read through the Bible, think about the ways God works with the other nations. Because when you really look at the other nations, who are they? I mean, Edom is Esau's people. We go through a train of people. We look at Jacob, Isaac, Esau, I mean, Jacob and, and Isaac and Abraham, and we look at their train, but all around them were countries established by other people of their family. They were actually family members. Their Esau was the Edomites. Lot was the, was Moab and, and Ammon, uh, Amdon, that's right, Rachel. But you notice that God doesn't have them conquer the circumcised peoples. Those circumcised peoples last until the carrying away of Babylon. So, whereas the Canaanites and the heathen peoples, they had 400 years of knowing about Abraham. They heard about the plagues in Egypt. And only a few, like Rahab and Jericho, only a few decided to act on that knowledge of who was the true God. Mm-hmm. But they had a chance. They had hundreds of years. Yeah. I mean, the Midianites were Abraham's group, too, but through, I think, Keturah or something. Leviticus 18 and the horrible licentious practices of those people and the probable extreme VD they had in their, in their cultures. God had to wipe them out. Yeah. Well, and that's actually got uh, right with my lesson here. Um, it's talking about. The New Covenant, I want to jump to that since I see we have five minutes left. The New Covenant of writing the Old Covenant actually into your heart. So it's not a change of covenant. It's just put in a different location. He'll remove your hearts of stone and give you heart of flesh and put his His law in your heart. So you don't have to be looking at a stone. You don't have to have a stony heart. Um, it talks about showing uh, showing your faith by your deeds. Um, I notice that Roman, I mean, in Revelation fourteen twelve says the people of God keep His commands and remain faithful to Jesus. And Monday it talks. I'm skipping through because I want to get to what Rachel was talking about, but I do want to hit some of these highlights. And that is, I really like this listed in Monday's lesson in Deuteronomy nine. It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, but so that He could fulfill because. Um, that you go into the to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out before you, and that he may fulfill his word which the Lord swore. So he's trying to keep his covenant promise. Uh, here the covenant of grace appears. God worked for them despite the constant mistakes, warned them what a king would do. We already talked about that. But we, um, even though we talk about the law, keeping the law, we don't earn salvation by the law. As we talked about before, the MRI shows us the problem. It doesn't save us. God saves us. And we were, I just wanted to add this too, that we were created for life. We were made to live. Um, And God's law actually describes life, what life, what it's like to live in accordance with life. It protects and promotes life. Jesus saves us, but I look at the law as a way to, that connects us to people and to him. I know that's not something you often hear about the law, the law connecting us. So any ideas about how the law might connect us? 
<laughs> I want other people to contribute. <laughs> I do have my own ideas. <laughs> but given the time, I put the opening, we open up to the flow of God's life through us, and we become the river, part of the river of life again when we do that. Seeing and then seeing even an enemy as the beloved of God and in need of help and healing and salvation instead of the enemy. It connects us by allowing the river of life to throw, flow out from us, not just get it. We're not the lake of life. We're the river of life. What we get, we are to give, but to flow out to others in good deeds, caring acts, self-sacrificing actions to reach out to the separated, to hurting the lonely. Because sin separates and hurts. We experience a lot of separation and loneliness. This year of the years of COVID here has really highlighted that. So the river of life within us helps us to connect to people who want to connect to people who are feeling lonely and separated and, and hurting. And then that, when we allow the river of life to go to other people, which connects us to them, that opens us up even more to have more blessings come to us so we can do even more for other people. And through that, we're connected to God and connected to others. So the law, being what God asks us to be, is connecting us to God and to others. First four commandments, love God with all your heart and, and put him first. Second six, The six commandments after that, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a connection. Then um, in Deuteronomy five twenty nine, I'm on Tuesday's lesson now. The I like this five twenty nine says, "Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever." Not so you could obey me and be my little slave and so on. He asked that we keep the law. So that it might go well with them and their children. I find it interesting that nobody has any problems with any of the laws of the Ten Commandments. Except for the one that starts with remember. <laughs> Why is it that we, we forget or want to forget the one that says remember? I look at the rich ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And I think that's a question we all have at some point if we come into connection with God. What will save us? So Jesus' answer was, um, keep the commandments. Which ones? (laughs) Uh, Thou shalt not kill, steal, so on. He listed some of the Ten Commandments. Oh, I've kept those all my life from childhood, the rich ruler said. But God gave an answer that showed he had never kept the commandments, ever. For one, he didn't care about other people like he cared about himself, or he wouldn't have amassed such a great wealth. There's plenty of need around every one of us. The world is an oozing mass of need. Two, he didn't love God with all of his heart, soul, strength, mind. Because when Jesus said, sell all that and give it to the poor and follow me, he didn't. So this guy who thought he was keeping commandments all his life was never keeping them. And it showed by his actions, by his deeds. And that's why when you look at how, when you look at the definition between who's, who the lost and the saved, this, to the saved, you were, I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was all these things. And Jesus said, when you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. Actually, that it ends up looking like what you do is how you're judged because it shows what's in your heart. So the very people, and, and Ellen White, I, I put these in my notes so you can look at it later, but Ellen White points out that religiosity like the pharaohs had, the pharaohs, the Pharisees had, religiosity, extreme, you know, attention to all the rules and the laws and the jot and the tittle. A lot of the times that ends up with the worst crimes of humanity and in the Pharisees' case, killing the God of heaven. So when you think about covenant, I've run out of time here. When you think about covenant, think about 
healing. Think about relationship. Think about a covenant is more than just, in God's case, is more than just, I'll do this and you do that. Covenant is a way of connecting to God in such a way that you open your heart and trust to be healed because it's only the great physician that heals you. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we are grateful for the covenant. We're grateful for the rules that help us stay safe, to help us stay close to you, that keeps us from straying off into places that are dangerous. We are so in need of you. Our salvation has not one thread of human devising, but our our character needs to be molded by you and become more like you every day so that we will fit in in heaven. It's more than just uh, saved by grace. It's saved by Jesus changing us because through grace he did what needed to be done to provide the healing we need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.